Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. I've shared with you all that my brother is getting married, so he is engaged and just got engaged recently, and so he is in the process, he and his his fiance are in the process of planning a wedding, and it's going to be in a condensed amount of time, it's going to be in July, and so they're having to do everything really fast and put it all together really quickly, and uh, was reminded of how many details go into planning a wedding. So you think about that. Amen, Kaylin? Yeah, they, you and Mason planning a wedding as well. How many of you all in the room are detail people? Like you're just naturally organized, detail people, kind of keep things together. How many of you in the room are not detail people? You're like the opposite, right? Now, in my case... My wife, Jill, is a detail person. I am not at any level. And so I did not do a lot of the planning for our wedding. She did. I am, I'm not the detail guy, but I am the food guy. And so I did taste and sample the food and gave my input uh, from that standpoint. And some of you all who are here this morning were at our wedding uh, here in Lebanon. But she drove the details, and there is a way in which we see any event. I think we got graduation coming up, so putting together those ceremonies and those events. There are a lot of details that go into planning any event and making it run smoothly. Well, what we find in the scriptures is that God is in the details. He is a details God, and we think about creation All of these tiny little details that are taking place in order for life to be sustained, in order for a caterpillar to turn into a cocoon, to turn into a butterfly that my son was chasing around the yard yesterday, right? There's all kinds of details that goes into that, and I'm, and you are not responsible. He is doing all of these things and overseeing as king of the universe, all of these details. But not only has God a detail God, But he is a wedding planner. And you say, what? Well, we find that the scriptures begin with a wedding. God conducts this wedding between Adam, who is called his son, and Eve, whose name means life. And he brings them together and calls them to be fruitful and multiply. And ultimately, we find that the scriptures are leading us to the point of another wedding A wedding that won't take place in Eden, but that will take place in Zion. A wedding of his son, not Adam, but Jesus, and his bride. An event that the scriptures tell us is going to be the marriage supper of the lamb, or the wedding feast of the lamb. And so there is all of history that God is working in detailed ways to bring about this Wedding to bring about all that is going to come together in this marriage feast. And in the midst of this, we find these weddings throughout the scriptures are central types. 
of what God is doing and our expressions of the way in which God is working out these details. And we're going to see in our, in our passage this morning, in John chapter 4, that there are all kinds of details that are bringing together this whole section. So we began in John chapter 2, we're going through John chapter 4, that pull all of these events together. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we started this section looking at the woman at the well, uh, and we saw, I'm sorry, (laughs) the wedding at Cana that took place, and we saw that Jesus was introduced to a problem, which is they didn't have enough what? Wine. And so, as I said, it was the first sign where Jesus turned water into wine, and it's the only sign that rhymes, and this was this introduction to the ministry of Jesus. And then we looked at the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and she was this woman who had had six basically broken covenants with men. And now Jesus was coming along as this seventh and this final man who was going to be this true covenant keeper to her. And we were reminded of the weddings that took place in Genesis where patriarchs met their women where? Their wives where? At wells, right? That's always where these events, these meetings of husbands and wives took place. And that's going to lead to this passage this morning. And it appears that this has nothing to do with a wedding. And yet, I'm going to hopefully show us that John is calling us and desiring for us to see how this passage and the events that are taking place are all tied together into this wedding theme. Uh, The first way in which we're going to see this is the place. Now, there are certain places that we go that trigger memories. Maybe you drive past the place and memories come back, or you walk into a room and you're just kind of flooded with memories. There's something about place that connects us with memories. And and Cana is a place that that's meant to happen. We're meant to remember that Cana was the location where Jesus has come. So verse 46, he went again to Cana of Galilee, which is a reminder that he had been there before. And then he tells us outright where he turned water into wine. And so what John is doing is he's telling us, you need to connect these dots. You need to take this passage and connect it with this miracle of the water being turned to wine at the wedding in Cana. And then at the end of this passage, John tells us, now this was also the second sign Jesus performed. And that's reminding us that the first sign was there as well. Also, this takes place on the third day. And the wedding at Cana took place on the third day. Now, when we know the Hebrew scriptures, is the third day a significant day? It's massively significant. And there's all these events that take place on the third day. And um, Abraham offering Isaac and the, the ram being provided, that was on the third day. There are always events that are s- events of salvation, of rescue, uh, of resurrection even, as we're going to say, that take place on the third day. Day. And so there's these connections between these events. Second is the plea. 
And um, so Jim Hamilton is a, a scholar, seminary professor, who his commentary outlined these connections. So just want to give acknowledgement to that. He, he shows that in both of these passages, the wedding at Cana and this healing of the royal official, first a need is communicated to Jesus. So in chapter 2, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 46, there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum, then jumped down to 47. He went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. So there's a need for more what in the wedding? Why? And then in the son, or the, the royal's son, he is ill. He needs healing, right? He needs ultimately resurrection. He's at the point of, of death. Initially, Jesus rebuffs the petitioner. So in chapter 2, what is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 4, Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The petitioner responds to this initial rebuff with a further request. Mary says, do whatever he tells you. His mother told the servants, And then in chapter 4, verse 49, Sir, the official said to him, Come down before my boy dies. So in both of these instances, the petitioners, Mary and the royal official, official, are not deterred in their plea by Jesus rebuffing their initial request. And this leads to the third point, which we'll consider and camp out here, which is the power. The power. Jesus in both instances, gives a command that is obeyed. In chapter 2, verse 7, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Chapter 4, verse 50, go, Jesus told the royal official, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. So in both cases, what does Jesus give? Instructions, And what he is doing is he is taking the authority upon himself. From the wedding standpoint, there was the head waiter who was in charge. Jesus is taking that authority. In the royal official's son, who did he report to? Well, he would have reported to Herod, right? From a royal standpoint. And uh, how many of you all are military or been in the military? Right? So thankful for your rank and order is very important, right? That's something that's very central. And so there is a way in which Jesus is taking a position of authority over a man who is used to being in charge. And so there's a demonstration of authority in that Jesus gives these commands. They're simple instructions and they are obeyed. And in, in response to that is at which point the need is met. Chapter 2, when the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So Jesus saves, here's what we're meant to see, Jesus saves the dead wedding. And this is what we're meant to see. A wedding without wine, in this context, was dead, right? And it still had several days to go. And in chapter 4, while he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was Alive, So Jesus saves the dead son. And 
If you consider that framework, you will see it is exactly the same story. It's the exact same event. And John is wanting us to see these together, that they follow this very specific structure. And the reason why this is important, so that we see the response in, in both instances, people believe in Jesus. In chapter 2, we say Jesus did this, the first of his signs. In Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples, what? Believed in him. Chapter 4, the father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. And this issue of belief is central. So there is a way that John's gospel wants to teach us what he means by belief. And so when we know some of these scriptures from John, like John 3.16, we think about the word belief. And it's a word that's used over and over throughout John's gospel. But what it is intending for us to see is that there is a kind of belief that John is, is not ultimately defining as belief. And there's a, a, a specific kind of belief that he's looking for. And we see in verse 48 of this passage, chapter 4, Jesus told him, the royal official, unless you people see what? Signs and wonders. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And that you is y'all. <laughs> it's plural. He is saying, you Galileans, and this is a theme that we're going to find, is that the Galileans in John's gospel are in the dark, first of all, and they don't believe without signs. They have to see signs and wonders. And Jesus is, is addressing this. This is an issue. And I know it doesn't naturally, we don't, but it's going to be a consistent issue. And in the middle of this, so this is called a chiasm or a chiasm, is, is you have these stories of the, the wedding in Cana and this story of the royal official and his son, and they're brought together. And in the middle of this, which is always the emphasis, is what? The woman at the well, right? Samaritan woman. And the point that we're meant to see is the woman who was looked down upon, no respectable Jewish man, you know, would have been around, this whole thing. She's the hero. She's the one who doesn't need signs and wonders. She's the one who simply, what? She simply, but she hears. She doesn't see. And yet she believes, and this is a theme that John is going to continue. And ultimately, this is going to lead to another, as, as John's gospel moves forward, there's going to be another son, not the son of the royal official, but the son of God, Jesus, who is going to be not simply at the point of death, but is going to die. And he's going to die for our sins. And yet, like the royal official son, he is going to be resurrected. And, and the way that the word Zoe, life, is used in this healing, we're meant to see the, the son being healed as a, as a resurrection from death. But ultimately, this is pointing us to the resurrection of Jesus. And he is going, going to be resurrected to bring about the new creation. And for all of those who believe in him, they are going to become his bride. 
And this is what we're going to see. That in his death, he will pour out his blood to purify. So we think about a white wedding dress. A woman coming down the aisle at a wedding in the white dress, that purification. This is what this is pointing to, that, that he's going to pour out his blood to purify and cleanse a bride for himself. And that is made up of those who believe in him. But also he is going to give from the wedding at Cana a new covenant, right, with his bride. And the new wine, which is what? What did we talk about? The spirit. So in his death as the son and resurrection, he is going to bring about this new covenant and he's going to give his new bride the new wine of the spirit. And all of this, John, is is meaning for us. All of these details, all of these clues to connect all of this together. And on the other side of this, so we are presented with another individual named Thomas. What is Thomas referred to as? Doubting Thomas. How would you like that? Like that's the way you go down in history. Guess where Thomas was from? Galilee. He's a Galilean. And in John 20, 28, Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. However, he did not do this initially. What did he need before he would believe that Jesus was my Lord and my God? To see, right? He had to see because Galileans, they've got to see, they've got to experience before they'll believe. And then John goes on in verse 29, Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. And this is you Galileans, you people who have to see and have to experience before you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. There is a kind of belief that Jesus is calling for based on his authority that because he dies on the cross, As this king who is crucified, wearing a crown of thorns. Above his head is written what? King of the Jews. He is crucified as king and then he is resurrected and ascended to this position of having all authority over heaven and earth. And as this king overall, he has the authority to instruct. How do kings do things? With their words. With authority of a king, you say stuff and guess what? It happens. And this is what we are meant to see, that Jesus says things, and this is throughout the scriptures, we see God operating this way. And so to believe in Jesus in the way that John is calling for is to hear his words and what? And obey. It's very simple. And against this needing to see, this needing to experience in order to believe, we find this message of hearing and trusting and obeying. And this is where we are called to, like the servants, simply follow the instructions that he gives. And the father of the son, this royal official, we can understand it. As parents, there is nothing like 
my children being hurt or sick. You, you feel for them. And this, this official who feels so deeply to, to need his, his son to be healed, does Jesus say, well, if you can muster up enough confidence, then your son will, believe, will be healed. So what he says. What does he say? Go. Your son will be healed. Is it the faith and the confidence and the, the absolute force of this father that heals his son? No. It's the words of Jesus. It's the promise of Jesus. And, and pushing back to the woman at the well, she had had six men who broke their promise. We've all had promises broken to us. They broke their covenant. And yet here comes a man who keeps his word, who keeps his promise, not only because he's trustworthy, because he's the king and he can bring about the results. And so we are meant to hear this. And first, to obey, to see Jesus as king, to live under the rule of his words. But secondly, and so, for instance, he, he gives simple instructions. Like, and this was he. So, there are simple things that we as a church do. And we're so used to them, we don't even realize this. But, like, be baptized. Go underneath the water and come out of the water. This is not something overly difficult or overly significant. And yet, it's this expression of trust. And it is in this that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. Simple instruction that he gives. And yet that's this entrance sign into being part of the bride of Christ. He gives us these simple instructions like take this bread, break it. It's my body, eat it. Take this wine, and drink it as the sign of the new covenant. Simple things, kind of odd things, things that don't make sense. And yet we, as his people, with him as our king, we do what he says. And it's as we do this that we experience the reality. As the father, of the, the, uh, as the royal official followed this path, walking home, he discovered that the words of Jesus were trustworthy. He discovered that his son had been healed at that exact hour. And as a result of that, he and his family believed. They experienced it, but it was walking in faith and trust that led them to that ultimate discovery. And this is how it works. We're not looking for this experiences, seeing or all of these realities. We walk in faith and it is in that that God shows and teaches and reveals. And so this is where we are called to trust his promises. He has given a promise that he will return. And as those who are part of his bride, who have trusted in him, gone through the step of faith, of, of baptism, and trusting ourselves fully to him, and gathering together as his people, he tells us that he's going to come back. And 
There's a way in which we constantly, in every space, in every generation, have to ask ourselves, are we walking by sight? Because guess what? The stock market's not doing great. There's things that are concerning and we ask ourselves, is he really in control and where is all of this headed? And yet in the midst of that, the question is, do we trust his promises? Do we trust that he is the God in the details, that he is the one who's able to to work in these details to bring about this wedding to come? Do we live by that story? Is that what shapes the way we think and what we feel? Well, as we take the supper, that's what's meant to happen. Because in the supper, we remember and we rehearse. We remember and we rehearse. We remember that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus was stapled to a cross where he would suffocate in his own blood to bear the weight and take the penalty and the punishment for our sins. We remember that he was stripped naked in this position of complete shame to be looked at by onlookers. And that in that, he was bearing the full weight of our shame. And that through trusting in him, we are both offered the forgiveness, the purification of our sins, and we're offered the freedom from our shame. We remember. But secondly, we rehearse. My brother will have a rehearsal dinner, and as the best man, I'm supposed to speak at that. You all have had rehearsal dinners. That's what we do with the supper. We drink and we eat, rehearsing for this feast to come. The feast to end all feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we are with Christ, we are brought together as his bride. And that reminds us of where history is headed, right? The God who's in the details is going to bring about this wedding. And so that gives us peace and rest in our hearts. As we consider this, I want to invite us into a time of searching our hearts and, and asking if there are ways in which Jesus' blood was shed to purify and free us from our sin, but are we living in that freedom? Are there sins that we're holding on to? And where there are, as we ask God to search our heart, we confess those to him and we repent and believe if we've never trusted Jesus as our savior that's what we do we repent of sin and living for ourselves, and we believe in Jesus in his life lived in our place his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection to give us new and eternal life by his spirit I'm going to invite us into a moment of prayer and response, whatever that is, right where you are. The deacons are coming around. If you don't have the elements, if you would just raise your hand and they'll bring them to you.
invite you to join with me in public confession. We have words taken from Psalm 51 to give voice to the confession of sin. I invite you to say this with me. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore us to the joy of your salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And here in response, the assurance, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ broken for you. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. So I invite you to stand. We're going to respond in song and as Dustin and Sarah lead us. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.